Today we're concluding our series, our four-sermon series, on being in the world but not of it. And we've left the most difficult for last, family and friends. So remember that the purpose of being in the world uh, is to be Jesus' body. We're here to be his representatives in this dark and lost world. Toward the end of the high priestly prayer for all believers that Jesus prays, just before his trial and execution, he said, I've given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I'm in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So we make Jesus known to our friends and family by our lives. But our friends and family see so much of our lives, right? They see us warts and all, especially family. They know the buttons they can push to get us to blow up or to melt down. They've seen us at our nastiest, at our weakest, at our worst. Even friends have seen so much of our ugly, selfish side, so much more than workmates or even churchmates. On top of that, we actually have reason to fear our friends and family because they know the chinks in our emotional armour. And if they feel threatened, they can stab right through those gaps and cause us great hurt. Am I wrong? So how then can we show them Jesus? Haven't we already blown it? Isn't this just too difficult? Shouldn't we just get some other Christian to do it? Well, let's start, let's start with, oh, why not a difficult Bible reading just to make things easy and go from there. Matthew 10, 34 to 39, a very popular passage to preach on. Not. <laughs> Don't imagine, sorry, just as that happened, my thing went off air, I'll use my... Neil, do you mind doing the slides? Or somebody, somebody can do the slides. Matthew or Simon, do you want to do the slides? And I'll just use my phone. Um, <clears throat> so, Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your household, in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. 
Before we continue, so if you can go back to the previous slide, Simon, I think we need to pray. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we know that you love us, that you love all people, so we know that these harsh words must somehow come from love. Help us to understand how and help us to have your incredible self-sacrificing love for our family and friends. Amen. So, how would you describe the meaning of this passage in one sentence? Oh, uh, Matthew or Finn, could you hand these uh, sheets out and make sure that everyone's got a pen to write with them? So, this is actually for everyone to fill in, these sheets. So, this is the first question on the sheet. How would you describe the meaning of this passage in one sentence? But I want to actually hear from people. How would you summarise it, Robin? It's a difficult passage. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Anyone want to make a stab at it? I think it just means put others first. Sorry? Put Put others first, even in your own family? Okay. Yep, count the cost. Sorry, Rose, you were going to say something more? Yeah, his command was that we love each other the way he loves us. Yep. And that's, that's, that's the tough side as well. And he still talks about loving our enemies and even those that Yep. So it covers a lot. Yep. Any, any other? Anyone else? Tim? Uh, this world and everything that it should hail in comparison... See how much you love me. Yep. Andrew? The way that we are meant to act as God followers is against our human nature. Yeah, yep. Graham? It makes me think of times when people put their faith in Jesus above what their family wants to do when they don't want to become Christian. Yep. Yeah. I think of when it um, comes where it comes, but um, where it says, if you follow me, you will have trouble. Not necessarily, you might have trouble, but you will have trouble. Yeah, yep. Yeah, so it reminds us. Reminds us that we will will suffer. Okay, so let's move on. Otherwise, this will be a very long sermon. Um, So, next slide. When you you come across bits of scripture like this, it's... it's, uh, It's easy to sympathise with people like Richard Dawkins who talk of God as a moral monster. And yet we know from our own experience that God is is anything but that. God is love. Why then is there so much pain in this short passage? A sword slicing through the bonds holding a son to his father or a daughter to a mother. Jesus brought that to earth. He brought conflict right into a household. Why would he do that? Well, despite our instinctive horror, this passage is the immediate consequence, I think, of two wonderful things. Next slide. First one, God's just and fair claim to be the boss of our entire lives. And the second one, 
God's grant to us, God's generous gift of genuine freedom of choice to each of us. When you combine these two things, you get what Jesus talks about. Let me explain. As Jesus says, if we love one another, if we love another, sorry, if we, not, if we love another person, even our parents, more than God, then we have become corrupted and twisted to the point that we can no longer dwell in the presence of a holy, good, loving God. Jesus says you can no longer be mine. Sometimes, of course, our love is actually selfish and we actually value our parents over God because our parents give us a comfortable place to live. They give us nice food or they give us whatever. It's a selfish love. But sometimes it's, it's actually not a selfish love, but it still messes us up. If we love another person more than we love God, we become twisted. The, con- the consequence of this competition of loves, this, this battle for who gets to be our number one, is that if our parent or child or other dearly loved ones, them, uh, our other dearly loved ones, love themselves more than God, and because of that they demand that we join them in loving them more than God, then we are faced with a stark choice. They're demanding that we love them more than God because they love themselves more than God. People who love God more than themselves don't demand that we love them more than God. And so we we have to choose between them and God. If we love them more than God, we lose our lives. Our hearts become darkened and the holy light of God deals out death to us instead of light. We've basically become idolaters. We've made someone else a god over God. Whenever we put someone number one, they become our god. And people are not suitable gods. If we genuinely love these people, and we show that by loving God above them, and then loving them as an expression of our love for God. And in that case... We become whole and clean and we can live in the light of God's presence because we are worshipping God. The sword that Jesus has brought to earth turns out then to be the sword of redemption. It cuts Jesus' people away from the snares that trap them, even when those snares are selfish family members or self-worshipping family members. But you could ask, isn't it, isn't it itself selfish to place God above your own family? This is what a non-Christian will tell you. But of course it's not. Jesus' approach, as harsh as it sounds, will at least save some, those who still obey him. But people who insist that others have to place them above God would doom both themselves and all of those they claim to love. Those people, even though in, in, our, in a worldly perspective they look like they're doing something okay, from a Christian perspective they look like people who refuse to jump into a lifeboat 
even if there are plenty of lifeboats, and insist that their family join them to drown in the ocean with them. Or their friends. Those people don't really love their family at all. They merely, they merely need, they hunger. That's not love. But a word of warning. This applies especially to teenagers. We cannot use this as an excuse to abandon people or to disobey our parents or to simply cut people off. Jesus is not commanding us to stop loving people. He's simply commanding us to always love him more. To always put him first. So we don't have to choose between loving someone and not loving them. We have to choose who we love most. Jesus or the people who are trying to make us their make themselves our number one. So, question. Next I no, it's not on the slide. This is on your sheet. Does Jesus claim to have brought division between children and parents mean that you can disrespect your parents? Now I'm not going to ask for discussion. Just write, just, just write your answer, and you might want to write why you think so, if you think so, and why not, if you don't think so. So can I get you to change to the next slide, please, Simon? Another way to look at this is from the perspective of how we should relate to friends and family who don't know Christ in day-to-day life. Jesus' words that we've just looked at tell us that we should never let others compromise our love for God, right? But what does that look like in practice? When we genuinely love someone, we want what's best for them, right? From our perspective as followers of Christ, we know that without saving faith in Christ, in Jesus, all of our friends and family are doomed, right? There's only, there's only one way to eternal life, and that's through Jesus. So everyone who doesn't go through Jesus is doomed. So does everyone, does everyone agree with that? Does that sound reasonable? Challenging, but, but true. So then, shouldn't our number one priority for our friends and family be to encounter, for them to encounter and accept the Lordship of of the risen Christ. Does that make sense? I'm not off on a weird tangent here or anything. So, now, the question then is, how can we do that? How can we, how can we bring them to Christ? There are several key behaviours, I think, that persuade people of Jesus' love for them and their need for his sacrifice. Next slide. First one, our love for other Christians. And you see that in the Gospel of John. We've talked about that recently. The second one, our personal transformation. We've talked recently a bit about how people seeing us being transformed is a genuine witness because they're seeing something that's humanly impossible and that that they can't deny. And it doesn't matter how bad we were to start with, the fact that we're getting better is what matters. And the third one is sharing the good news. 
which is what we usually call evangelism. And of course, Romans tells us about that. Unless people hear, how can they have faith? Now, it's important to note that if we go straight to number three, sharing the good news, we're probably not going to have much success with friends or family because (coughs) there's so many barriers, mostly the barrier of their knowledge of us. They, our life is shouting in their ears. The gospel's a small whisper and they can hardly hear it. So <clears throat> it's not only that. With friends, our post-Christian culture, the history, the history of the church in our, and our culture, the conflict, the things that the church has done wrong, and the way that our culture is now views the church in an entirely negative light, this is all a barrier to sharing the gospel. And we've got to overcome that barrier. We've got to persuade people that the gospel isn't toxic. We're not a bunch of bigots and, um, and uh, homophobes. We're people who love. That's our primary, primary expression. Jesus encountered this same barrier in his ministry, not the barrier of the church, but the barrier of the long history of misunderstanding of God's covenant with his people Israel. And Jesus overcame that barrier by personal discipleship, by miraculous signs, and of course by his self-sacrificing love. That worked for Jesus, who was God and who came as a human being. But but it's, it's not really how the early church worked. The early church emulated some of that. But the early church consisted of normal human beings who had lots of flaws and who struggled. They overcame the cultural barrier primarily by living out Jesus' new commandment, to love one another as he had loved them. In the next slide, we can see from Acts chapter 2, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, like we just did, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them and and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That's the very beginning of the church in Jerusalem. Now don't be too discouraged by that that last bit because we don't experience each day God adding to our number those who are being saved. You've got to remember that the Jerusalem church was the first fruit of 2,000 years of preparation. So of course it started with a bang. And thank goodness it did. But if you keep reading in the New Testament, you'll see that the churches planted outside Jerusalem struggled a lot more. In fact, most of the books in the New Testament are about the struggles of the churches outside Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem church itself had a a real struggle after a few years. So we need to remember that our lives are perhaps the clearest evidence our friends and family have of God at work. It's the way we live our lives. 
That's what they see. That's what they hear. And sometimes this will make them jealous. People get jealous of God. If you're hanging out with your Christian friends, if you go to church every Sunday, people get jealous and they try to pry us away from God. Family does this, especially. But, but friends do it too. Next slide, Simon. Perhaps they'll schedule birthday parties at the same time as, they, as when they know we're going to go to church. Perhaps they'll invite us to exciting adventures when they know we are gathering with our brothers and sisters to worship God. Perhaps they'll cleverly point out that the church isn't God and we might need to love God with everything but we don't need to love the church with everything. Perhaps they'll try some other tactic. There's many, many tactics that people have to try to separate us from a life of serving and loving and worshipping God. But as Jesus made horrifyingly clear in the passage from Matthew, a natural consequence of his coming is division, a sword. Allegiance to Jesus, in fact, demands division, and we're not going to be able to avoid it. Immediately before he said this, Jesus was warning his disciples that persecution would come, as Tim said. And his answer to that threat was to reassure his disciples that whoever stuck to him would be rewarded by Jesus' acknowledgement of them in heaven. So, so the context is, is making clear that there's a lot at stake here and Jesus is asking for a commitment, a choice between one choice and another, between him and the world. And the world can include our loved ones. So let's think about it. As Christians, we profess to have given our lives to Jesus. He's now the centre of our universe, the ruler of every part of our lives. At least that's what we're aiming for, right? If Jesus' lordship over our lives is to have any significance at all, we need to demonstrate that somehow. It's got to be visible somehow. A changed life, a genuine love for others, these are all demonstrations. But so too is a desire to join together with fellow servants of God in worship and praise and discipleship. Next slide. In fact, as Christians, we're not merely individual adoptees of God. This is just some random bunch of Christians. Um, <coughs> We're adopted into a whole family with brothers and sisters. If this family means less to us than our old biological family, so if this spiritual family means less to us than our biological family, then it's reasonable for that biological family to assume that God means less to us too. Remember that the Apostle John says that if you say that you love God but you don't love your brother... You're a liar because you can't love God who you don't see if you don't love your brother who you do see. And John's speaking not just to us, but he's speaking to what we look like. If somebody sees us theoretically loving God, but not loving our brother in Christ, they're not going to conclude that we love this mythical God because they can see that when we have the opportunity to love one of God's people, we don't. 
if this family, um, so these, when people see that, they'll rightly conclude that our claim to have placed God at the centre of the world is in fact false. Anything we say to them about God will then be heard through this filter of scepticism about our faith and its centrality to our lives. And so our witness will become hopelessly compromised. Now, it may sound harsh to draw such a strong line, as Jesus does, between our old families and our new families. But notice that Jesus actually talks specifically about family. He really doesn't pull his punches. Sometimes that line is necessary. And it's not just necessary for our sake, but for our family's sake who don't know Christ, because we can't show them Christ if we're not living him out, if we're not choosing him. So, on the sheet, there's a reflection. Have your friends or family tried to separate you from Jesus in some way, like purposefully scheduling things during church time or youth group? How did you handle it? How do you think you should have handled it? It's very difficult to win people over when you're not at least attempting to live out your values. So while you're thinking about that, listen to this story from last year which illustrates how hard it is to hear people's um, perspective when they're not living it out. This was in the Australian last year, the Australian newspaper. About 400 private jets will fly into Glasgow for the climate talks. That was COP26. Prompting accusations of hypocrisy against world leaders and captains of industry. The sheer volume of arrivals by private jet has prompted accusations of hypocrisy. Matt Finch of the Transport and Environment Campaign Group said... The average private jet, and we're not talking about Air Force One, emits two tonnes of CO2 for every hour in flight. It cannot be stressed enough how bad private jets are for the environment. It is the worst way to travel by miles. And I don't think there was a pun intended there. Um, Our research has found that most journeys could easily be completed on scheduled flights. Private jets are very prestigious, but it's difficult to avoid the hypocrisy of using one while claiming to be fighting climate change. (laughs) And just as a, a note, US President Joe Biden touched down in Edinburgh on Tuesday, Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, and President Emmanuel Macron of France arrived at Glasgow. Mr. Biden's interage consists of a fleet of four planes, as well as his Marine One helicopter, and a vast motorcade including the Beast and numerous SUVs. So just just like the message of climate change, the message of the gospel... tells us that we need to act now to avoid a a distant future disaster, right? Very similar. Act now to avoid this thing that's going to happen off in the distant future. Hell or uh, hell. (laughs) 
But if if we're living out, <clears throat> it's 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 difficult to communicate that message, right? Because it's something distant that requires action now. But if but if we're living out that message, if our lives show how urgent we think the message is, Jesus' message, then our friends and family are more likely to give us some credit and perhaps listen to our good news. Right? Next slide. So as we finish up, I'd like you to reflect on what part of your life shows the urgency, the importance to you of Jesus and his message of salvation. If we're not showing that urgency, if it's not visible to our friends and family who we want to win over, how can we expect them to listen to us? It's a difficult message that we have. It's a long way off and we're asking for immediate difficult action, just like climate change advocates, except ours is much more important. And also there's a question. If you wanted to invite a friend or family member to church next week, how would you persuade them of the value of church to you and to them? So I'd like you to take those questions home and think about that. Because I think that this passage where Jesus is telling us that there's a choice. We need to make a choice. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, if we cannot love him more than everything else, including other human beings, we're not going to be able to, to live, live out his word. We're not going to be able to be a part of his kingdom. We're not going to be able to draw others to him. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognise that you are the most important person in all of reality. We confess that we don't always recognise how important you are and, and when we do, when we, when we do let you down like that, when we don't recognise you, we're, we're not just letting down ourselves, we're also sending our friends and family the wrong message about you. Lord, we're sorry for that. Help us to always treat you as God, as the majestic, all-powerful creator God to whom we owe all our love, all our strength, all our lives. Help us to live out our love for you with such intensity, such urgency that our friends and family want some of that wonderful joy that we have and help us to share you with them. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.